Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, here with some results from the March 15th primaries. Thank you, Florida. Thank you, North Carolina. Thank you, Ohio. We're going to win, 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 and we're not stopping. We're going to have great victories for our country. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. And I want to remind you again tonight that I will not take the low road to the highest office in the land. That last clip was Republican John Kasich after his big win in Ohio, where he's governor. Donald Trump continued his momentum with wins in almost every other state, and Hillary Clinton won big in Florida and Ohio. Plus, Marco Rubio suspended his campaign. We'll talk about what happened and where we go from here. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. All right, so it's about 11, it's actually 11.38 p.m. right now as we talk. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's late. Long day, long night. It's not that late. But it's late, though. For election night? <laughs> Come on, guys. Uh, but it's late, though. Um, <laughs> Sam's like, it's past my bedtime. <laughs> you know, I should be watching Netflix right now. Anyway, we don't know everything yet about tonight's votes, but we do have some results to talk about. Domenico, catch us up. What do we know right now? Well, we know that Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side has won uh, three big states with uh, North Carolina, Ohio, and Florida. Ohio was a key race because uh, both the Clinton and Sanders campaigns thought that that race could be pretty close, uh, and Clinton pulls it off as a big deal for her. Uh, In Missouri right now, it's too close to call. Sanders is up narrowly, and in Illinois, Clinton is up, but also too close to call. On the Republican side, Donald Trump with a big night winning in North Carolina, Florida, and Illinois. Uh, As we mentioned in the open, John Kasich won in Ohio, and it's too close to call right now in Missouri with Trump up narrowly over Ted Cruz, someone we didn't hear much about tonight. And granted, some of those things might change as the night progresses, but from what we know on the GOP side, This is basically another big night for one Donald J. Trump, correct? Yeah, there's nobody else in the race who has a clear shot at a majority of the delegates heading into Cleveland. We can say that definitively tonight. And that's a pretty stunning thing. Nobody a year ago would have even thought for a second that Donald Trump would have been the nominee. Six months ago, people would have still said, eh, you know, when Republican voters come along uh, and start thinking about who they want to be president of the United States, they're not going to pick Donald Trump. Everyone is left scratching their heads over it. And it looks like he, short of a contested convention where people try to go with anybody but Trump, which doesn't seem likely, he stands the best chance of being the Republican nominee at this point. And there's some exit poll data that kind of points to this really interesting coalition he's building across several different types of voters, right, Asma? Exactly. And I think that, you know, what you were saying earlier, Domenico, about the idea that people didn't expect him to be doing this well is really interesting. I think so early on we kept hearing about his ceiling, his ceiling can only reach up to this point and then people, but we've seen candidate after candidate drop off and still Donald Trump still keeps coming away with wins. So I've been looking at his exit polls and I think the thing that makes it so interesting and fascinating and yet simultaneously complex is that it's really hard to pinpoint what a Donald Trump voter looks like. Hmm. I think, yes, he does very well among working class voters, uh, but he does also really well among college-educated voters. You know, that's not maybe his margins might not be as big, but he's won them in a number of states. In a state like Florida, his margin of victory among college-educated voters and non-college voters was nearly identical. Um, I mean, so it's really hard for me to say, you know, he wins uh, poor voters, rich voters, uh, suburban voters, rural voters. He's expanded beyond that ceiling 
that everyone thought he might have. People started off saying, well, okay, he could get a quarter of the Republican Party Mm -hmm. or, well, he could get a third of the Republican Party. Oh, he can't get evangelicals, right? Right. He did that. But does he reach a ceiling in the general that is black and brown voters? That's a different situation altogether as opposed to winning a Republican primary because most Republican voters are white. I mean, let's be honest about that. That is what it is. When you start talking about non-white voters coming into the mix and we've seen the protests you know, Donald Trump decided to hold a rally at the University of Illinois, Chicago, in Chicago, on one of the most diverse campuses in this country. And an activist campus. I, I mean, it's a commuter school. Yeah. Uh, it's more than half non-white. Reminded me of a lot of the city schools uh, in New York City uh, where I grew up. So when you see those kinds of protests, you get a sense, you get a taste of what a general election with a Donald Trump on the ballot would look like. Anybody who wants to look at these turnout numbers, yes, Republicans have blown away turnout records uh, in these primaries. Democrats are off from their numbers from 2008 when Barack Obama was elected. Throw all that out the window. If you have a Donald Trump on the ticket, you likely have the biggest turnout in American political history with every voter on each side motivated by the other. So is the only other alternative right now to Trump, Ted Cruz? What are his chances now after tonight? Uh, Ted Cruz is in second place. He had a very bad night tonight. And after the delegates are allocated, he'll still need something like two thirds of the delegates to be able to get a majority. So nobody has a clear shot here. You know, Marco Rubio dropped out after losing Florida in a big way. And Donald Trump now going against, uh, you know, John Kasich and uh, and Ted Cruz, John Kasich you know, he still needs like 90% I mean, of let's remember, he delegates. won Ohio. And, and sure, that's a big win. It was a winner-take-all state, but it was his home state. Right. I mean, when did winning your home state become such an achievement? <laughs> In the year of Trump. I mean, so, but let's talk more about Rubio later on. But with Kasich, he won... Must needed win. He stays in this race. What is his strategy? He did, but right he now? won. I mean, in fairly nuanced ways. If you look at the okay. exit polls, so you know he did well among college-educated voters, among voters who make more than a hundred thousand dollars, and late deciders. But we've known all along that that is perhaps a weakness of Donald Trump's. He doesn't seem to do as well with late deciders. I mean, I would argue that's a fairly narrow path to victory. I mean, it was good, but this was also his home state. It's also he's governor. So, he was governor. You know, yes, when yeah. you're a governor of a state, you have a certain machine that's able to get you elected and get you reelected. I mean, this is somebody who's reelected fairly recently. He's a high approval rating. If John Kasich couldn't win in Ohio, where could he win? And I was in Ohio for about a day with Team Sanders and locals I talked to, even Sanders supporters were like, yeah, we want Kasich to win this thing. I mean, there was, I was going to say, there was independent turn on Democrat, turn out Republican. He won all of that turn out. He speaks their language, as my grandfather would say. All right. So let's talk about Senator Marco Rubio, who dropped out of the campaign tonight after losing to, to Donald Trump in Florida. Um, in any other year, wouldn't Rubio be the nominee? He's a young, fresh face, diverse, extremely charismatic, photogenic. This did not happen for him. There was a lot of celebrating among Democrats, liberals uh, tonight, because they thought Marco Rubio was the, the person who made them sweat the most. I mean, they thought that Marco Rubio, being Hispanic, speaking Spanish, uh, was would have been able to at least peel off some Hispanic voters. You saw in Florida tonight, actually, it had 16 percent Latino turnout, which is the highest, uh, I think, in history for Republican uh, race. Marco Rubio won them overwhelmingly. Now, those are Republicans. But Democrats feel like he could have peeled off a, a slight bit of them. And the fact that he was not able to win 
not only tonight, but nowhere else. And we've been saying for so long, how long we say, where's Marco Rubio going to win? And it, what did he win? A caucus in Minnesota. Puerto Rico. He won all of the delegates in Puerto Rico. D.C. D.C. And he won Washington D.C. But that's not and what that you should be tell up you. There that should it. tell you all you need to know because the order in that race in Washington D.C. was pretty much what the establishment wanted. You know, I've, there there have been a series of Marco Rubio obits in the press, national, local, everywhere, and I've read them all. And it seems like a lot of Rubio's problem wasn't just Trump. Um, he tried to campaign through national media as opposed to on-the-ground outreach early on. He miscalculated in where to focus and where to put his energy. I mean, strategically, was he ready for this? Well, there's always a lot of second-guessing, but the fact is, in the year of Trump, in the year of this kind of message, Jeb Bush hit the buzzsaw. You know, Scott Walker, who was the quote-unquote dark horse who could unify the two wings of the party, he saw his hopes fade away, as uh, one person said to our Don Gagne, who was out on the trail saying that he'd been blanded out of the race. You know, they suddenly got a, a taste of Trump and it was it suddenly had changed their thinking on someone like a Scott Walker. So I think for people like Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, Scott Walker, those kinds of people, this is not just was not their year. Yeah. I mean, I spent I was going to say all of last week in Florida and I never got the sense that for a sitting senator, he had home court advantage. And I mean, it, we were we're looking at some maps earlier. It looks like Rubio didn't win anywhere Rubio besides won, Miami-Dade. Rubio won one county oh where he's from in Miami-Dade. Uh, Florida's a big state. But he yeah. didn't <laughs> campaign heavily in Florida till late, right? Well, I mean... He's a sitting senator. He's a sitting senator. But you, you can't take it for granted. He, I don't think he took it for granted. I, yeah. I think that he was, he was running out of cash, um, and he just didn't have the kind of... You know, he wasn't able to overcome the Republican grassroots. And he's not a governor. I mean, there's a mm-hmm. difference when you get elected once in 2010 as a freshman senator. He hasn't had to go run for re-election at this point. Uh, you and know, he won't be and running he's for re-election. Not be running for he re-election. has no job what as of January. I don't know. What was so interesting, Private though, sector. in his speech dropping out tonight, it didn't sound like a dropout speech. It sounded lofty and ambitious well, he and did, goal-oriented. He left, he left the door open. Looking. He said that uh, God does not want him to be president this year. Oh. But, uh, or or ever, maybe, he said. <laughs> I just, it felt like a weird tone to hit on the night you're dropping out. It, like, say, I'm sorry, I tried, and get off the stage. You know, what you know, was this about? A lot of times, candidates deliver their best speeches when they drop out. A lot of people will talk about Al Gore and the speech that he gave uh, when he conceded to George W. Bush. And so many people had lamented Al Gore's stiffness and awkwardness uh, as a candidate. And everyone always will say, boy, that was a great speech. If only he had campaigned that way. And people will say that all the time about candidates saying, boy, where's this been the whole time when it's been there? It just wasn't something that people were buying. Okay, let's talk a bit about the Democrats. We'll hear now that it's almost inevitable that Hillary Clinton is a nominee. Mathematically, why is that, Domenico? Well, because the proportionality of how Democrats hand out delegates is what makes it very, very difficult for Bernie Sanders. Uh, you know, tonight was a night that the Sanders campaign hoped that they could come close to splitting delegates with Hillary Clinton, and then they could really hit the gas going into the next six weeks. And they have an argument, frankly. I crunched some of the numbers last night, and when I was looking at a potential path for Bernie Sanders, let's give him you know, a lot of the states that are coming up, there was a path. I mean, there was a very narrow path, but he, he could have made it with big wins in places like New York, California, and some of the upcoming states. 
you know, Hillary Clinton over the next six weeks is going to struggle. So is there still a path for Bernie Sanders? There's there's still a path. How big is this uh, path? But it's difficult. It got harder tonight than it did coming into the day. I mean, he needed something like 53, 54 percent of the remaining delegates coming into the day. He needs about 55 percent of those remaining delegates for a pledged majority, not even with the superdelegates. I had one model in which I was looking at, let me give Bernie Sanders, you know, uh, huge wins, 55, 58, 60 percent in places that he should win. In Washington State, Oregon, et cetera, and uh, you know New York. And when you got to June 7th, he was still 92 delegates behind Hillary Clinton, and he would go over the top with California if he were to win it with 58, 60%. But that same day, Hillary Clinton would reach the magic number of 2,383 delegates with the superdelegates if they stayed with her. So you could have had a very precarious situation. Today makes that much more difficult for for it to happen. So, I mean, I was with Team Bernie the last few days, and he basically, after Michigan, said, we're going to pivot hard on trade and hit Clinton for her previous support of trade deals. And he gave this speech in Youngstown, Ohio, where he basically said over and over, these trade deals cost you your jobs, you in Youngstown, Ohio. And Clinton supported those deals. And the thinking was that message that worked in Michigan could work in Ohio. Why didn't it work? Was Michigan just a fluke? Explain this to me, someone. So I don't know to what degree we can say Michigan was just a fluke. But I think one of the things that's interesting when you look at exit polls, because I was doing some sort of side-by-side comparisons between Michigan and Ohio. You know, the thinking is somewhat similar, Midwestern, old industrial states. That question on trade was asked to voters. You know, does trade with other countries take away U.S. jobs? Fascinating. According to the exit polls, Clinton won among those people who thought that jobs are actually taken away by trade in Ohio. She did not win that group in Michigan. And they were they were similarly, they were a, mar- a majority of the voters in in uh, Ohio said mm-hmm. that, that uh, trade costs U.S. jobs 53 percent as compared to 58 percent in Michigan. But Sanders in Michigan won them two to one. And in uh, Ohio, Hillary Clinton wound up winning that group. But to me, what's interesting is at least in Ohio and Michigan, I think there were questions about Hillary Clinton's level of support among among white voters, among working class voters, among union voters. And it seems... Ohio proved she can do that. She can do it. Yeah. For now. And I was just going to say, since we talked about white voters in the Republican Party being such a big piece of this, it's ironic that Hillary Clinton you know, was trying to appeal to white voters in a Democratic election that she needed to expand her base on because with non-white voters, non-white voters make up a significant chunk of the Democratic exactly. electorate. And that's why Hillary Clinton has racked up such huge yeah. delegate leads. And what's so interesting, compare her this year campaigning hard to get white votes. In 08, she could really only get white votes in those primaries <laughs> when she well, ran she, against she Obama. She did well among you know? Latino voters. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, but like yeah. she was struggling you know, black, with black yeah. voters. Totally, totally, yeah. Yeah. Well, when you have the first black president running and you could win in Lily White, Iowa, as a lot of yeah. South Carolina voters told me then, yeah. and they went overwhelmingly for Barack Obama and he wrapped them up, it was very hard for her. And she had to appeal to white working class voters in places like Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania. This time around, it's, uh, it's really interesting interesting to see how that's been reversed. Yeah. So Bernie Sanders spoke for about an hour tonight. It mirrored closely the stump speech I've been hearing him give out on the trail for the last few days. 40 years? <laughs> you know. Um, he did not talk about any losses. He uh, He's going to be going forward from what his staff has told NPR. What does this mean for Bernie Sanders? What does he do now? It means we're going to June. 
I mean, let's be honest. I mean, because of the proportionality and the way that delegates are handed out, and Bernie Sanders is going to win a lot of states coming up in the next six weeks or so. I mean, let's not you know underestimate. He's he. It's difficult for him to get the pledge majority, and at this point, likely won't. But. I mean, he's going to win a lot of delegates, I and mean, he has and a lot of money, and, and not he's been an insignificant as a amount. Message. I mean, let's. I mean, I feel that his yeah. his supporters want him to stay in here because he's campaigned on this message of inequality. They believe. I mean, there are some demographics. Well, I should say in particular the young voting bloc, like eighteen to twenty nine year olds, that Hillary oh, he Clinton is still. Yeah. Yep, he blows her out of the water, yeah. and I mean, and I think that a lot of her supporters or a lot of his supporters want him to stay in till the end. Yeah. I think that some of, for me, some of the questions that pop up tonight is I think in a lot of ways tonight was a pretty good night for Clinton. She didn't just do well among, you know, sort of these mm-hmm. white working class voters she needed, but in Florida, she did really well with Latinos. And to me, there there were some questions around, you know, how well she could do with the Latino vote early on. So it seems like she has a broader coalition. She does. Point, and as we Sanders move does. to Arizona, yeah. Latino vote will be key. We move to California, majority minority state. I think that some of this is going to play out in her yeah. favor. So my question is, you know, Bernie Sanders for months now, has pulled Hillary Clinton to the left on several issues. The longer he stays in this race, does he keep doing that? Or at some point, is Hillary gone as left as he's going to go? I mean, I don't think Bernie Sanders sees it as pulling her left. I think he sees it as the correct message, right? I think that he sees it as, you know, corporate welfare and hitting billionaires is the problem. And there is some risk because if he continues to poke at her speeches to Wall Street banks, if he continues to poke at her ties to Wall Street. Rahm Emanuel even. You know, the mayor of Chicago who is wildly unpopular And endorsed Clinton. Right. Those kinds of things can be nagging and difficult. Could they weaken her, you think? They could, Mm -hmm. potentially. But if, on the other hand, she's able to beat him off with a message and find a message that works for her, because right now, it's clear Bernie what Bernie Sanders' message is. It's still not that clear in a subject verb object way what Hillary Clinton's message is. I think yeah, I, I think Hillary Clinton's message is her resume. Well, She's like I, I've been doing this for they, a long when time. They switched, and I'm qualified. When she switched that language from I I I to we, you saw a marked change in how people perceived her. And you know, fair or unfair, that is something that her campaign has to be aware of. You know, it's just. Who, you know, or how is she getting, you know, to to go and try to shape that message? This is the kind of thing a primary can help you do. Uh, She can take some of what Sanders has been talking about, wrap it into something that she thinks works, find, uh, you know, her stride. And that's where a primary campaign can help, provided it doesn't get too nasty. And I don't think Bernie Sanders wants it to get Overly nasty, but he hasn't shown himself to be and, somebody who won't. And he's take the scrappy. Off I mean, like to, in yeah. this last week, he's been hitting not just Hillary Clinton from his dumb speeches, but also Donald Trump. I mean, right. like he has not been afraid to say to call out other candidates. Yeah. Well, um, if he does, if she does win in a place like Arizona, by the way, and they think Sanders campaign thinks that's a must win for them, you might see a change in tone. I mean, yeah. you might see him stay in, but start to hit Republicans more rather than necessarily going yeah. after her with low blows. Yeah. All right, that's a wrap. we got to go to bed. We'll see you later this week. Our weekly roundup will be a day early. It'll be up by Thursday evening, so enjoy that. Thank you for emailing us your questions and feedback and for rating our show on iTunes. As always, catch our political coverage on your local public radio station. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. And I'm Asma Khalid, also campaign reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.